Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. When we sit, the most important thing is that we're not controlling anything. So a good way to begin um, setting your intention for sitting is just to remind this being that for 10 or 20 or 30 minutes, um, we're just not going to control anything. We're just going to feel uh, our breathing, and we sit like a mountain. We open up to the changing environment in and around us, and we feel breathing without trying to control our breathing. And yes, we keep coming back to breathing, but uh, the point is not to breathe. That's not the point of meditation. We're just using the breath so that we calm our reactivity. It's a means to an end. And then when reactivity is calm, we start to train in knowing what calm feels like. So if you're a meditator, don't get attached to breathing. The breath is just a means to an end. We're feeling the breath, and after a while, if you keep staying with the breath, eventually uh, you'll lose track of it, and then you'll just feel spacious, quiet, calm. And then um, you'll get distracted by that, and then you'll have to start again from the beginning. So you're letting go of your preoccupation with being a self in the world, and all the habits that come along with that. Letting go of that preoccupation so that you can see, as Shinru Suzuki said yesterday, that the world is its own magic. The world is its own magic. And then your body becomes an ear. And there's just trees, sirens, phones going on and off, messages coming in and out. And there's an openness to our lives with less preoccupation with habits. So don't use the space of meditation to try and clarify anything or to try and get clear about your desires or to solve emotional problems. Just use the space of meditative practice to feel that ease that comes with committing to breathing. Then you sit for 10 minutes. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever your schedule allows. And at the end of sitting, you bow. You bow, and then maybe do some kind of ritual to get up. Maybe you ring a bell, 
or maybe you just stretch from one side to the other side. Maybe you take out the Heart Sutra and you look carefully at a couple of lines, or maybe you've memorized a couple of lines. And then when you get up, the 20 minutes after you sit is the most important part. It's more important than the 20 minutes that you sit for. <clears throat> after you sit for the next 20 minutes, you want to practice very deep listening. So your ears are open and you go change your clothes, you brush your teeth, you get a coffee, or you get a coffee. <laughs> and whatever you do, like maybe getting a coffee, you practice breathing and listening. And then you start to train in feeling that transition between the formality of sitting still and moving your body and receiving more sensory information. And that training is really, really important. When I'm on retreat with people, I always say, um, the most important part of the retreat is the transition from sitting to walking meditation, or from walking meditation to sitting meditation. So that you're drawing your circle of awareness really, really wide. And in, as you practice, you're drawing it wider and wider and wider. If you're jealous of somebody, then you have to draw your circle wider. If you envy somebody, you have to draw your circle wider. If you can't forgive somebody, you have to draw your circle wider so that you're open to your life. And the practice keeps saying, let go, let go. And you keep saying, I can't, I can't. <laughs> and then the next day you practice and the practice says, let go, let go. And you say, no, 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 I can't. <laughs> but the most uh, important thing is that you're practicing, not playing around. Don't play around. When it's time for formal practice, just do your formal practice. Don't mess around. Usually, the way we mess around is we want to gain something. So, the Heart Sutra says, no gain. How do you practice just to enjoy your life? Not to gain something. That's why I never use the word discipline. Practice isn't a discipline. It's something that we enjoy over time. We learn techniques. And the more we learn, the more we want to practice. The more we practice, the more we see how it benefits ourselves. The more it benefits us, the more people around us say, you should do another one of those five-day intensives. <laughs> it was fine taking care of the kids. Really, it was fun. I mean, during the week, I was stressed out about it. But now, I realize it was really, really good for you. And we should do that. Yeah. But deep in your heart, you also are starting to realize what a bodhisattva is. A bodhisattva is somebody 
who realizes that awakening in oneself isn't enough. So they make a vow. And the vow is not to be attached to the state of oneness until every sentient being is free. Human, non-human, or even in the human-built world, that everyone and everything is free. So, we practice meditative uh, techniques, and sometimes we experience what I described yesterday as this non-dual experience of the breath, just breathing. There's nobody there. But we don't get attached to that because that's just one side. So we don't practice duality and we don't practice non-duality. We practice the Heart Sutra, which is neo-non-duality, which basically means it's post-non-duality, which basically means we don't care about duality and non-duality. We're not attached to either of those things. Non-duality is really great. Duality is really great. But we can't get attached to oneness because there's also not oneness. And not oneness is just as important as oneness. Why? Because the world is its own magic. You don't have to just see the oneness of the world. You also need to see all the complexity and the difference of the world. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. There's water and there are waves. The waves come out of the water, but the waves are not separate than the water. Emptiness and form, they go together. And having realized this, you begin to see, it dawns on you, that uh, the only thing to do is to help people. It's the only thing you can do is just help people. And the helping people includes this territory also. <laughs> it has to. In Christianity, uh, deep compassion comes out of poverty. In Buddhism, deep compassion comes out of emptiness. Same thing. To see that everything's changing and that you can't grasp it, that people are changing, you can't grasp them, that your job is changing, you can't grasp it, that your body is changing, you can't grasp it. Even music is like this. Do you ever hear a song and it just moves you so much? And you remember like where you were when you heard the song and there's just this like very deep spiritual experience. Maybe even as a teenager, you know that. But maybe this happened this week. And um, and then you play the song again because you want to have that experience again. And it kind of works. You can kind of get there. And then you play the song a third time, and then it doesn't work anymore. You can't get that back again. In 1987, uh, Allen Ginsberg, do you know Allen Ginsberg? Poet Allen Ginsberg, uh, gave a lecture at the New York Public Library Allen Ginsberg, I should say, when I was a kid, he was my hero. 
And I used to tell people that we were related, <laughs> which is not true at all. But I used to always tell people uh, that we were related. Isn't that terrible? You know kids make these things up? So I used to tell people that I was related to Ellen Ginsberg. Um, probably like maybe 13. Coincided with smoking pot. <laughs> um, anyways, um, Allen Ginsberg is a really beautiful poet, and something you may or may not know about Allen Ginsberg is his poetry was very, very influenced by the Heart Sutra, by the teachings of the Heart Sutra. And there is a clash song called Ghetto Defendant. Do you know it? It's really good. It's, it's kind of a clash. It's basically a reggae song with white guys singing. And throughout the, throughout the song, Allen Ginsberg is just improvising and just speaking. And then at the end of the song, Allen Ginsberg chants the end of the Heart Sutra. It's really beautiful. Um, you should listen to it. It's really ghetto defendant. Anyways, in 1987, at the New York Public Library, just before he died, Allen Ginsberg gave a lecture about poetry. And I just wanted to read just some of his comments about what a poet is. And I think you'll hear in it the Heart Sutra. So here's what he says. Real poetry practitioners are practitioners of mind awareness. They're practitioners of reality, expressing their fascination with a phenomenal universe and trying to penetrate to the heart of it. Classical poetry is a process or an experiment to probe into the nature of reality and the nature of the mind. You need a certain deconditioning of attitude, a deconditioning of rigidity, so that you can get into the heart of your own thought. That's parallel with the traditional Buddhist idea of renunciation. Now listen to how he describes renunciation. Renunciation of hand-me-down, conditioned conceptions of mind. Renunciation of hand-me-down, conditioned conceptions of mind. It's the meditative practice of letting go, neither pushing away or inviting in. But as you sit meditating, watching the procession of thought forms pass by, rising, flowering, and dissolving, and disowning them, so to speak, you're not responsible any more than you're responsible for the weather. Because you can't tell in advance what you're going to think next. Otherwise, you'd be able to predict every thought. And that would be sad for you. There are some people whose thoughts are so predictable. Isn't that nice? So when you sit, uh, try not to be predictable. This would be a good definition of practice. If someone ever says to you, uh, what's your practice? You can just say, not being predictable. So when you sit, uh, don't go inward and don't go outward. If when you're meditating, you close your eyes and you have like very strong visions or colors or you see discs, 
um, or your body wants to like move in certain directions, don't close your eyes. Open your eyes and breathe and don't go down that territory. That's seductive picture thoughts. They're seductive picture thoughts. So here's a rule. Whenever you feel that something special is happening, no. No. Don't do that. Okay. Great. Feels nice. So, let go of that. Feels nice. Feels painful? So, feels painful. Let it be painful. Feels nice? Let it be nice. But don't start going down there. It disappears usually when you start going down. It does? So there's no inside and there's no outside? And there's no not inside and not outside? In other words, it's a swinging door and you learn not to favor one thing or another. And this is a really important practice if you make art. If you make art, you should never say that you're an artist. Because it's an exaggeration. You're not an artist. You're just a someone who's practicing intimacy. Trying to get so intimate with life through a particular medium. And at some point in that practice, realizing it's a practice. And it's necessary to have to treat it as a practice so you can stay intimately connected uh, with life. Maybe your art practice is working in a hospice, creatively learning how to be with people when they're dying. Maybe your art practice is being a mother or a father, learning how to be playful with your children even when things are hard. Maybe your art practice is um, painting. And in order to paint, you have to undo everything that you've ever seen. Anybody paint. <laughs> in order to paint and feel free about it. So, Why are we talking about all this? Because the Heart Sutra says, if you're really going to practice, then you'll start to see that what you're actually doing is letting go of all of your fears. And one of the strongest conditions that frees us, freezes us <clears throat> in the midst of change is fear. Freezes us. It stops us. And when we're present with fear, we also see, when you can really open to fear, you see that the energy of fear is the energy of freedom. We just have to enter it. Because fear is always the anticipation of a future distress. Or a future pain. If you don't have any fear, if you just went through the whole week, and you had no fear, you're probably not risking enough in your life. We need to challenge our nervous systems 
to take risks. This year, I started skateboarding. When I was 13, I stopped skateboarding because my parents took my skateboard away after I injured myself. Skateboarding is a little different than some sports, is that you're going to hurt yourself and it's going to be really bad. <laughs> because when you fall, when you're skateboarding, you fall on cement. There's nothing you can do to stop that. So if you're going to skateboard, you're going to really hurt yourself. So anyways, I decided it's time to start skateboarding again. And it's been really great. Um, I was hoping that I would start skateboarding with my son, but he's too freaked out. <laughs> but when we're caught in fear, I don't know if you noticed this, but fear is a trance state. It's like being in a trance. And you get frozen. And it's good to ask yourself, how many of my fears are biological? And how many of my fears are just made up because of my anxiety about change? Ask yourself this. How many of my fears are biological? And I should feel fear. Like when I get on a skateboard and try and drop into a skateboard park, it's, I'm really scared. I'm totally freaked out. It's terrible. And then it's amazing, suddenly. It's like they were in proportion to each other. And also, I decided I'm only going to do it for a year. So I'm going to skateboard for one year, and then I'm going to stop. How many are biological and how many are... How many are biological and how many are just fears that are just add-ons to your anxieties about change? about the fact that your life is always changing. The word worry uh, through Latin comes from the root uh, to strangle. And when we're scared, when we're worried, we're strangling our freedom. And you can feel this in your body. When you have chronic fear, you get chronic armor in your muscles and also um, in your respiratory system. There's a Zen saying, which is that fear is only as deep as the mind allows. The Buddha said that there are five fears. Here's the list. Fear of death. Fear of illness. Fear of losing your mind. Fear of losing your livelihood. And here's the best one. Fear of public speaking. He really said that. That's the fifth one. I would add, because the Buddha didn't have social media, but if the Buddha knew about social media, he would add one more to the list, which is fear of missing out. Also known as FOMO. Fear of missing out. Yeah. That there's something going on in London right now 
and you're missing it. I feel that a little bit. Like every night, I go home and I lie down and read and have a bath, have dinner with Elizabeth and Graham, and then go to bed at 9 p.m. And I always feel a little bit like, I'm in London. I should be, you know, I should be at the theater. Glenn Close is starring in Sunset Boulevard, and Clint has her, the Swedish painter has an exhibit at the Serpentine Gallery. And I mean, there's all kinds of amazing thing going on. I could eat, you know, dinner grown from manure at the Hackney uh, farm. And I walked by a store that grew salad out of fish feces when I was in Hackney. Have you seen this? There's a store, and they have all these fish. They collect the feces, and then they grow uh, salads. And you can come in and buy the salad. I like looking at it through the window. <laughs> so anyways, I feel like I'm missing out on so many things. So anyways, these are different kinds of fears. And, and, and the point of uh, all of these fears is that um, they paralyze us. Mark Twain said, uh, the worst things in my life never happened. <laughs> also, it's good to know in your life when things are too powerful and you can't get stable and you need some things in place to get stable. Maybe you need more community. Maybe you need different kinds of friendships. Maybe you need to eat differently. Maybe you need those salads from the store. Uh, does anybody know this store? What's it called? Does it have a name? Farm shop. Someone asked uh, the Dalai Lama, what do I do with fear? And he responded, if you can do something about it, take action and don't worry about it. If you can't do anything about it, don't worry about it. <laughs> so one of the things we're learning when we can stay with our breath is to stay with different moods, including fear. And that is a practice of not knowing. Feeling fear, allowing it into your body, having whatever is necessary in and around you to stabilize you so you can sit like a moving, fluid mountain and feel what fear feels like and get to know it. And when you get to know it, it changes. It doesn't paralyze you. And sometimes in one period of sitting meditation, you can go from strong fear to strong bliss in five minutes. And to start getting to know that, really getting to know that. Yeah, and then, sorry? This meditation I've had is when my chin on fire. <laughs> no, really, the chin yeah. on fire, my stomach flipping. You know that, when you get so frightened, yeah. you, just, you, just, you really feel like you've got a fish yeah. and you're really flopping yeah. with terror. Yeah. 
And then later, of course, the fire company doesn't control and then later that line has meditation going to tell you. So scared, I'm sure. It was like, yeah. 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 Actually, someone. Yeah, someone down the road from us just had a chimney fire. The mom was making lunch. Her daughter was making soup. Her daughter was um, waiting at the table for the soup. Started smelling something, then hearing a sound, and then they looked in the living room, and it was like a rocket. The fire was just shooting out of the chimney from a wood stove. So they called the fire department. The fire department came, put it out. Everybody was okay, and then. Um, so I saw them after this, and the mother described this kind of like flames shooting out of the top of the house. And then I said to the daughter, I'm like, that must have been really scary. And she said, my soup got cold. <laughs> Isn't that such a teenager? She was just like in her, like, where's my soup? <laughs> When something's too powerful, like TLS. sometimes, what's that? TLS? Fear or any emotion comes in that's just too powerful. You should find out what you need to support yourself so you can learn how to be with that experience. I think what I'm trying to strike a balance in is saying that we're never fearless. But when fear arises, we can transform it. But we should have some amount of fear. And if you never have any fear, you should take more risks. Skateboarding is a really good one. Um, OK, so then we attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, according to the Heart Sutra, which my understanding is exactly the same as the title of the Heart Sutra. Is you attain unsurpassed, perfect wisdom. Perfect pragna. And then this all leads to the punchline of the Heart Sutra, which is very, very magical, which is a mantra, which is saying, OK, so we've gone from super cognitive at the beginning. No, 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 no. Remember all of that? And then halfway through, it gets all emotional, which is no fear. Why no fear? Because no walls in the mind. No walls in the mind. If there are no walls in the mind, there's no fear. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Like you're not giving your reactivity a place to land. Okay? And then, um, it, so it goes cognitive, emotional, this is my reading, emotional, and then it ends with this magical mantra. Anuttara means unsurpassed. Samyak means correct, and Sambodhi means awakening. Can you repeat that again? 
Anuttara means unsurpassed. Samyak means correct. And Sambodhi means awakening. And the reason why I've left it in Sanskrit, and many translators leave it in Sanskrit, is so you don't know what it means. <laughs> and that's my favorite part. My favorite part is this ending is a positive way of saying that there's nothing to fear, and also we don't know what anything is really. So just wake up to that. Don't be scared. Just keep going forward. I feel this way. Uh, the other day I was on the Skype with my wife. And um, so we have a little baby now who's uh, five months old. He's so cute. I feel like we shouldn't have a break. I should just pass pictures around. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks their baby's so cute. And they're like, this is the cutest. Mine is the one. And all those other cute ones. Mine is the platonic image that other people measure the cuteness of their baby. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, before I left, I said, you know, I think I'm done. I don't think I could do deal with another, another infant, you know, I think I'm done. And uh, my partner's like, oh, I, I think maybe we could do one more. I'm like, oh my God. And then I, I really had some fear around it. I was like, oh wow, you know. And then I was talking to a friend of mine who's a dad of five children. Oh. And uh, I said to him, I'm kind of freaked out by this idea of like, having another baby. And you know what he said? What else is there to do? <laughs> and it was kind of flippant when he said that. But actually, I keep thinking about it. And I keep thinking, hey, yeah, what else is there to do? Let's just keep going. <laughs> What's that? The earth is overpopulated, so we need really, really good kids. <laughs> yeah. So don't hold back. Go forward. And also, keep practicing so that when you feel fear, you don't get restless. You feel, free, you feel fear when you know how to respond to it. And then that's Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. And now the sutra becomes voodoo, magic, and turns into an incantation. And if you chant it, it will calm you down. Because a true mantra is not something that you chant over and over again. It's actually how you move in your life. It's a dance move. So the Prajnaparamita mantra is the mantra of practice. It's how you enter a room. It's how you eat. It's how you breathe. It's how you love people. It's how you break up with people. And no matter how rough or smooth your life is going, you have this rhythm of this mantra. And whenever you're scared, you chant it. Whenever you get scared, you just chant this mantra.
it's a reminder that whenever things feel divided or fragmented or broken, the healing that you need is right here. It's right here. And the chant goes like this. Gate, gate. So let's say that. Paragate. Parasangate. Parasangate Bodhiswaha. Gate gate. Paragate. Parasangate. Bodhisattva. Oh, I always say Bodhisattva. Bodhiswaha. If you're ever with someone when they die, at the moment they die, this is what you chant. Because usually it's translated as gate, gate, gone, gone. Gone beyond, gone beyond, beyond. Which really means gone, utterly gone, so gone, totally gone, they're gone. Bodhiswaha. Bodhi means awake. So we're awake to that goneness. And swaha just means amen. Like, wow. Like, woo <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like a celebration. So gone, gone, beyond. So gone that they're gone beyond, beyond. And whatever you think that is, they're gone beyond that. Amen. So, look closely at how it's set up. It's set up that when you chant that, it activates the Heart Sutra. So it's not enough just to like Heart Sutra, chant the Heart Sutra, or like study the Heart Sutra. You have to activate it. How do you activate it? You chant. Gate gate. Paragate. Parasangate. Bodhiswaha. Now, if I go deep into the back of this academic text and I start reading the footnotes, I discover something very interesting. Let me read to you. Sanskrit, gate, with an e, as in get, but stretched, is a form of the verb gum, which means go, move, set out, or come, which is related to the English word gate. You can go, or you can come. The verb is actually related to the English word come. So it's tempting to compare gum with ga, another Sanskrit word similar in sound and meaning, related to the old German word gum, meaning go. 
However, gate is a feminine form of the past participle gata, which means gone away or deceased. Also, gate is a form of the feminine noun gati, which means arriving. Did you hear that? So, you could completely change your understanding of this. And here, arriving, arriving, completely arriving. To the other shore. Completely arriving. Right here. This is the other shore. So you're arriving beyond your idea of what you're arriving to. Like maybe you would translate it as here, here, beyond what you think of here, here. Amen. So it's this moment. Right here. Isn't that interesting? Um, <clears throat> Listen uh, as this academic keeps going. Sam, parasam gate, means all together or thorough. Sam gate means gone altogether or arrived altogether or fully arriving together. So, what that means is when you chant gate, gate, para gate, it doesn't necessarily mean gone, gone, beyond, beyond. It also could mean arriving together. Isn't that interesting? I never knew that until I started reading this geek. <laughs> but that's the bodhisattva thing. You're not going to go without Can't go everybody, anywhere. every sentient being, everything yeah. with you. Yeah. And when somebody dies and you chant, you arrive with them. Sometimes when somebody dies, they're more present in your heart than they were when they were alive and they were annoying. Right? Teachers are like this, right? Someone's a good teacher. You've probably studied with some really good teachers. And then they die, and then they're an amazing teacher. And then all these stories come out about them because nobody gets to really see them behave. Whenever someone tells me that they think I'm a good teacher, I always say, that's because you don't live with me. <laughs> right? So arrive here all together. That's what we're doing. That's what we're practicing. So when you get scared, you just say this to yourself. Gate, gate, para gate, para sangate, bodhisattva. Gate, gate, para sangate. Oh, wait, did I miss one? I can't do it broken up. Let's all do it together. Gate, gate, para gate, para sangate, bodhisattva. Again, gate, gate, para gate. The most important thing about this chant is that you don't know what it means. We are so scientific, all of us. 
And we're so into like what knowing everything means to such an extent we don't do any ritual anymore because it's too symbolic. We have to know what everything is. So it's good to have some magic in your life so that you sometimes trust something that's, you know, not always given to you, spoon-fed to you. Do you sing this also, child? No. Oh, yes, sing it. I don't, I chant it. Yeah. Yeah, different traditions will do different things. You can do whatever you want. I mean, you can go sing it with the clash, you know. No. Um, any questions? Yes. Um, it's not a question. It's, uh, do you mind if I share my experience with sure. the Sure, yeah, trip? go ahead. Um, last summer in June, I joined Michael in southern France on a silent retreat for seven days. And every morning after our first sit, we chanted the Heart Sutra. And I knew of it. I was aware of it, but I didn't really, I had no preconceptions about it. And no, we didn't have any explanations about it either. Michael didn't talk about it uh, at all. So we did it every day. And then I just kept doing it ever since. And it became almost immediately, I went home, and because of, of the, 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 also the ritual, the formal beginning and ending of the sit, I, I, I have a formal beginning and ending of my sit. And this, at the end of the sit, I chant the Heart Sutra every morning. And the, the, mag, the magical thing was I never actually memorized it. It just memorized me. Yeah. And, and yes, yeah, that. Great. Thank you. That's the idea. You got your money's worth. <laughs> and it comes up on its own. Yes. Besides that one time in the day, I might find myself, you know, it, it just coming... As you say, yeah. at moments, the whole thing, or just the final line, or usually the whole thing, or parts of it, mm -hmm. uh, just a, a really a moment where it's needed. Yeah, thank you. And I'm hardly aware of it even sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Has, any, has anybody memorized the Heart Sutra yet? Yeah? Which part? I've started from the beginning, and, and it's, it's incredible. Alice is, it's, it's coming to me. Okay, I'm, let's hear Let's I hear. mean, I can I can start from the beginning. Okay, but let's I'm hear. Under pressure now, I can't. Oh, try. No, no, I can't. Please, under pressure. please. <laughs> no, it's, there is it's, no pressure. It's, it's, it's no, it's quite. At the moment, I feel like as though I'm really kind of. We'll breathe with you. Going to. No, no, but I just like to express my um, connection because I'm waking up to it actually yeah. now. Yeah. And I have a 17-year-old at home, and he's slipping through my hands. Oh. in a most subtle way uh -huh. and um, I'm, I'm kind of really observing this um, transition uh -huh. um, with my heart oh. because physically I can't grab him anymore mm -hmm. and so he comes and expresses himself in very little moments and uh, I've been dealing with our emotions whilst mm -hmm. he's really got no, nothing to mm -hmm. <laughs> offer me anymore and Suddenly, um, it's it's all it's turned into a, a moment of um, 
celebration, no loss, no gain. And it's so nice because he comes and, I mean, over the last few days in particular, I have managed to completely um, feel at ease with him. There is, and every time I feel like as that I've got something to say to him, that it's from my point of view, <laughs> the mantra comes to my head instantly. And, um, and, I, and I'm waking up to it. And, and I, even this morning, this morning Roman was walking with me and I really felt like as though I really am happy for him walking with me, but I'm equally having the mantra walking with me. So uh -huh. I'm in a conversation yeah. at the moment and it's... Yeah. Great. So, yeah, it's 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 come to me, and it, yeah. it, it's almost like it's done now. It's beginning to 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 to, to take over the place. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, better the mantra takes over than like. What usually takes over. So so I really encourage everybody. Thank thank you. I really encourage everybody. Memorize the whole thing. And every once in a while, just chant it. So that you've got that last line, gate, gate, per. So that when you find you're in time of difficulty, you chant it. And the most important thing is you don't really know what it means. And you just let it work on you. And you let it be an incantation. You let it be a mantra. And you let it influence you. Especially, especially if you're one of those people who's like, well, I don't really know all the Sanskrit. And, you know what I mean? I don't really know what it means. But I'm not going to chant a foreign language and things like that. Just try it on. You've written it, Michael. It's so yeah. interesting because it really um, digests with man, human um, um, huh. sense of, um, in a way, analyzing yeah. things. So yeah. before the brain begins to analyze, yeah. the answer comes. Good. So you can follow up the next Great. line. Good. And that's really mm. skillful. Yeah. Good. Oh. Is there another comment? Yeah. I have a question to that. So, so the way I, I'm used to chanting in Mokhri Yogi, Vedanti uh, Bhattantra tradition, uh -huh. which uh, stress very much is on, it's important to do this in Sanskrit because I don't know the meaning of the words. I just get the phonetic sounds, and uh -huh. then they are supposed to do something with my consciousness yep. because they entail this power. Um, now, with this, I hear what you're saying, but I'm also present to... So there's another space opens up between the lines and behind that present state of consciousness, so there's an opening. But I also experience there's an interpretation of my conditioning of words, because this is an English language, and there's something... I have some memories of that. Hmm. So is that something that eventually disappears the more you go into... No, because if you were at a time where you learned, if, when you knew Sanskrit, you would have all that. Like someone trained in Sanskrit has all that. So it's exactly the same with English. And English is, English is just as sacred as Sanskrit. English is exactly as sacred as Sanskrit. And if you don't believe that, go to uh, the British Library. Go spend a few years there. Is Sanskrit more important that each um, letter of the alphabet is connected to one point of... Uh, like yeah, and so is English. So if you embody English, if you're a poet, if you're a linguist, if you're a writer, so is English.
And if you speak Hebrew, which I did when I was a kid, so is Hebrew. And if you speak French, maybe not so much. <laughs> and same with Hackney. So, someone who hasn't had a chance. Someone who hasn't had a chance. Yes. Yeah. It's not that different than music. You know, sometimes you hear a piece of music and you don't really understand it, but it just, it does something. And we need to have many things in our life that act on us that way. Um, because we're overeducated and we know so much and we work from that place all the time. And the takeaway from this whole week is that not knowing, beginner's mind, is fundamental to healing, is fundamental for action, is fundamental to compassion. It's that beginner's mind, not knowing. So we need rituals where we don't know. Just like, as I'm trying to encourage you, you need movement practices where you don't know exactly how to control your nervous system, your muscles, your bones in that movement. It's really important. With that. Uh, two more comments. One, two, and then Just chocolate. <laughs> Actually, the, the asana practice we did, surprisingly for me, uh, I think most people here, uh, worked on me at a very different level. So it wasn't really just physical, it was uh -huh. really uh, best with my head. Yeah. And uh, it got so refreshing. Yeah. And, um, and I also was, oh no, now what do I do? And I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. You just see what happens. Uh -huh. What's around the corner? Yeah. But just the fact that it's opened up, not just physically, but also allowing something in, yeah. a new way of looking at something and breaking all the patterns, yeah. that's been really invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. And then don't hold on to that either. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I'm into this new thing right now of not using the glutes in Upward Dog. <laughs> yeah. So next year, I might come back. <laughs> next year, I might come back and like teach you how to get into Upward Dog and then release your glutes. And you're going to be like, what? This is like, a, but I have the, I know the system. So, yeah, and then we're going to have a break. Oh, just um, yesterday, I saw Alistair riding with his right hand as well. Uh -huh. I thought, okay, I would like to memorize the Heart Sutra, but then also test the fear of not knowing. So I thought, okay, I'm left-handed as well. I'm going to write on my right hand. So you're practicing both memorizing and that. So I just thought yeah. it was fun. So if anybody wants to do that, I thought I'd share that idea. And yeah. it took me like yeah. 50 minutes to write it. <laughs> I think it's actually needed on my left-handed writing. So yeah. That's 
There's a, there's a, uh, I'll end with this, but, but there is a place in Kyoto, uh, which I've been to, which is uh, one of the oldest moss gardens. And um, it's only open like one day a week. And if you want to go, first you go do a service with the monks there, where you chant the Heart Sutra. Then you have to write out the Heart Sutra in Japanese. So you have to look at all the characters, you have to write it all out, and then when all that's done, you get to go see the moss garden. Because you have to go through this process until you're just in the not knowing, yeah, men and women, until you're in the not knowing space, and then you can go see the moss garden. So that you're seeing the moss garden completely fresh. So, thank you very much. Let's have a 15-minute break. <laughs>